If we go into that relationship with the attitude that we know more than they do, there's pretty, pretty good chance that relationship's not going to go well. <laughs> Being self-aware and having humility and coming in and saying, you know more than I do. I know some things that can inform this, but, but please tell me what, what you need to do. Having that genuine curiosity then to say, tell me about yourself. What are you accountable for? What, what pressures do you feel in your job? How can I help you succeed in your job? And, and if you succeed, then we all succeed. The discipline of design is now key to building great products. More and more companies are making space for it at the higher levels. More people than ever want to become designers. And most of us who already do the job want to find ways to have just a little bit more impact in our teams. Welcome to Design Meets Business. I'm Christian Vasile, and on this podcast, I bring you world-class product and design leaders who found ways to shape products, companies, and entire industries, and who are now sharing what they know with you and me. My hope is that we all get to learn from the experiences, ideas, and stories shared on this podcast, and in the process, become better designers. Today, I'm chatting with Doug Powell, who's a design leader I've looked up to for a very long time. Doug was VP of design at IBM for many years, and we talk a lot about that today, as well as about what's important for you to do as a design leader, what role coaching and feedback play into your career growth, and what he thinks about the famous quote from Phil Gilbert, the business doesn't care about design thinking, the business just cares about outcomes. With no further ado, Doug Powell. Doug, it's an honor to have you on today. Welcome to Design Meets Business. There's a lot of ground that I'd like to cover. You've had a lot of impact on the design world, whether that was by teaching or chairing the board of AIGA or leading design at IBM or being part of the Expedia group more recently. You've got this, this is a prototype podcast as well. You're doing a lot. So it must be thrilling to be you. It must be busy to be you. What was your journey like to get to where you are right now? Thanks, Christian. Thanks for uh, inviting me to be a part of the discussion here. I'm, I'm honored to be on the show. So I've been a designer, practicing designer in various ways for over 30 years. And so uh, I kind of look at that, so those 30 years in three chapters, if you will. The first chapter, I entered the, the field of design as a graphic designer, a visual designer. The first 10 years or so of my career was really about learning how to do that work, how to deliver, how to work fast, how to listen carefully to the needs of clients and partners and to build relationships with those clients and partners, how to run a small business and just how to do, again, to just do the work, which sounds obvious, but it's actually really important. Moving forward then into the second chapter of my career, say the late 90s, early 2000s, and there was a lot happening. This was just post-internet, post-digital media, initial transformation. So the practice of design was changing dramatically in those years. The way that we design, the methods of design, the whole idea of user experience design was just coming into focus in those years. And so I had a great 
opportunity then to learn how to do design in, in a, a different way, to learn how to understand the needs of real people and to point my designs toward those needs in a very explicit way. Again, might sound obvious as we sit here, but these were ideas that were not really codified or not really shaped or formed yet in those years. The third chapter is really about scale. And this goes back to about 10 years ago in 2013 when I joined IBM. The big mission there was to create a sustainable culture of design and design thinking at IBM. The way that we did that was to scale the practice and program of design at a level that really hadn't been done before. It also, I don't want to claim that we were the only ones doing it because, in fact, it was being done at other big companies in those years as well. But the key aspect was nobody had done it before. We were talking about hiring and integrating a thousand or more designers into that company. And those were numbers and those that was an idea that just hadn't been done before. And so we had to figure out how to do that without a playbook, without a template without a user manual. <laughs> and, um, and so once again, I was in a situation where I had to learn something on the job, learn it, figure it out every day, along with a bunch of really talented people around me. So a couple of themes that sort of stretch across those chapters, continuously learning and evolving my practice of design and my practice of leadership, scaling, growing, and expanding the lens of design and also creating the conditions for designers to do great work. And that's really what's at the core of my, I guess my personal mission as a designer and a leader is creating the conditions for designers to do great work. That's really what drives me and what I'm passionate about. There are a lot of threads I could pull on here. So uh, I have to, I think we're going to pull on, uh, we're going to come back to this introduction and I'm, we're going to probably base everything we're going to discuss today on this. But let's go straight to the beginning to what you said earlier in the first chapter of your career. I find interesting that you said in these 10 years or so, I focused on learning to do the work, delivering fast, listening carefully, and then building relationships. And those were sort of the foundation of your design career later on. How have these important aspects of being a designer, especially delivering work, listening carefully and building relationships, these three, how have you seen them change or the requirements around them change over the years or have they changed at all? Or is it exactly the same thing expected today of an individual contributor that was expected of you in the beginning of your career? Well, they, they've changed, uh, to your point, they've changed a lot and they haven't changed at all. <laughs> They've changed a lot because what I was doing back then, we were doing design in an analog world, prim primarily. I mean, we had the early Mac workstations in our studio, but we were also doing traditional paste-up design with key lines. There was a lot of paper, there was a lot of film, and a lot of working with photographers and typesetters and printers. Uh, most of what we did was ink on paper as it actually came out into the world. So that's changed. Of course, that's changed dramatically. Hardly uh, there's very little of what I do or what I'm involved in anymore has that sort of manifestation. It's almost entirely digital. So that part of it has changed a lot. 
what hasn't changed is that we as designers need to know, as I said, and as you emphasized, we need to know how to understand the needs of a business and of the people who are relying on that business to do something, whether it's shopping in a store or managing their finances or doing their very complicated job. They are depending on this business, this company, this service to do that. So we need to understand them. And then we need to turn that understanding into solutions that make their life better in some way. And we need to be able to execute that solution. And that's where the doing of the design that I learned in those early years of my career is so important that regardless of whether it's ink on paper, key line that you're handing to a printer or pixels on a screen, an app on a digital device, it doesn't, that, that's almost irrelevant. What's important is that you need to get from idea to execution and you need to be able to do that repeatedly, consistently. You need to do it efficiently and increasingly now, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, we need to understand the success or measure the value of those things that we are delivering. That's an, that's another aspect that has changed for sure, uh, because we've gotten a lot better at understanding whether what we're creating is, is good, successful, or not. Part of being able to execute really well, especially when you work in companies bigger than just yourself, is building relationships. It's something I talk about all the time as a designer, I think you're often as a sort of a pivot in the middle of different other cross-functional partners. And I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about this idea of building relationships and how do you do that as a designer, joining just a new company, nobody knows who you are, you don't know who they are, how do you start? What's a good relationship with your cross-functional partners looking like? There's a lot of questions in here, but just around the this idea of building relationships, how do you do that as a, an individual contributor? Yeah, first of all, I'd say, even if you're a designer working on your own as a freelancer, you are still absolutely, maybe even more important that you are able to build strong relationships. Design never, ever happens in isolation. It always happens in interaction with other stakeholders. It just can't, it can't happen without that. So how do we do that? How do we build those important relationships and how do we nurture them and grow them? I think that one of the the core qualities of being a designer for me are curiosity, humility, and empathy. And that you might think, what about craft? And what about execution? And what about detail? And what about aesthetics? All of those are important, but those are the ways that we work. The core qualities of us as a designer, curiosity, humility, and empathy. So take, for instance, humility. I think that's really important as we build relationships with especially cross-functional stakeholders that we're working with every day. If we go into that relationship with the attitude that we know more than they do, there's pretty pretty good chance that relationship's not going to go well. <laughs> that's And that's I see that too often. I see too many designers coming in and with an attitude that they have the answer and that they that they know more than everyone else on the team being self-aware and having humility and coming in and saying you know more than i do i know some things that can inform this but please 
tell me what you need to do. Having that genuine curiosity then to say, tell me about yourself. What are you accountable for? What pressures do you feel in your job? How can I help you succeed in your job? And, and if you succeed, then we all succeed. So there's a, a humility there that we are initiating that relationship with that's very important. There are lots of other things then that go on from there, but that's an important starting point. Start with humility. I think I'm also hearing a bit of curiosity there, not just humility, right? Because if you say, I want to know what's important to you, I want to know what you're accountable for, I want to hear more about this piece of feedback that you've given, the design that just presented that you don't like, why don't you like it? What's exactly triggering these, these opinions? I think that also goes back into the other stuff that you said, which is curiosity, right? It's not, all, not necessarily presenting solutions and saying this is it, but uh, when someone pushes back or has a different opinion, also being curious as to understand why that is, right? And uh, the empathy is trying to understand, again, what's, what's driving this person? What pressures are they under? Everyone in business is accountable for something. And if they don't achieve that, then they aren't successful. And if you can tap into that, and then that can usually inform how you conduct yourself with that person. You also said earlier that uh, a big part of your career is throughout all of these chapters is allowing designers to do great work or, or rather creating the conditions so that they could do great work. What do those conditions look like? They're different in every environment. At IBM, for instance, we needed to get to a point where we had enough designers that we could make a difference in that company. We thought that number was a thousand designers as quickly as we could get to. We ended up adding more than 3,000 designers to the company in the time that I was there. Getting to the right number is important. The teaming of the designers was important. It, one of the core principles of that program as we built it was no designer should be on an island by themselves. What we found was that in talking about creating the conditions for designers to do their best work, they needed to be in a, an environment where there were other designers and researchers around them that understood them, that were practicing similar practice of design. If they were out there on their own in the business without that support system around them, then they almost always did not succeed. So that was another thing that was important there. We needed to codify the actual design practices, the way that design was being done, the methods, the approaches, the hands-on doing of design. That hadn't been done at the company to that point. We needed to create a career architecture that, again, we're talking about the conditions for designers to do great work. Designers need to see opportunity for themselves to grow as a professional, to advance in their career, to acquire new skills along the way. We needed to build the infrastructure for that to happen at that company because it didn't exist before that. Another condition was that when I joined the company in 2013, there were no workspaces where designers could do their work. There were no design studios. It was mostly either computer labs or cubicles were the, the typical types of workspaces at the company. So we needed to change that. And we created a, a network of design studios around the world. We built out 50 design studios where designers 
des- uh, d- we're doing their work, we're design and design thinking, we're being practiced every day. So those are a few examples of the, when I talk about creating the conditions, some of them are very obvious. Some of them are fun and interesting, like creating workspaces for designers. That's cool. Some of it is really not sexy. Like creating a career architecture is hard work. That's like doing the plumbing. You have to crawl under the house of the business and get you roll up your sleeves and you get all messy and it's hard and you're sweating and then you think you've got it and then water's all over the place. <laughs> That's hard work. It takes a long time to do that work and it's oftentimes not fun. It takes resiliency to move the needle on that kind of work. Yeah, I think it's interesting to hear this because the work of a design leader sometimes feels a bit opaque. It's very hard sometimes to understand what do they really do because they're not in Figma all day. They might be at design reviews every now and again, but what do they actually do? And I think this is a great example of what they do. They fix the plumbing, if you will, of the organization. You said something earlier there. You said you didn't want any designer to be on an island by themselves. You wanted them to have this support system. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Why was that support system so important? Design and designers were new to the company at IBM. There were some designers uh, at the company, maybe a hundred or so, that were scattered around the company. Most of them were working in isolation, and they didn't have a connection with each other. And some of them were doing great work. Well, some of them were doing good work at that time. I don't think there was great work being done by designers in those years. Um, What we found, and we were hiring a lot of designers at the early part of, of their career. So these were designers who hadn't, many of them, it was their first career design job. So they hadn't been in a, a professional setting doing design and they needed to have a support system close by that was their family. The people who spoke the same language, who worked in the same way, who, you know, had the same interests and There needed to be sort of a cultural connection for the designers there in order for them to thrive. And certainly when the going got tough and the going got tough a lot in in that company in those years, it was a hard place to do good work, as many big companies are, to be able to look at that person next to you and say, hey, this is really hard. I just got out of a really tough meeting and to have some support there to have somebody who had your back, that was super important. There was lots of cultural strength to that program as, as we built it. I don't claim credit for much of it. A lot of it really grew out of the, out of the community of designers themselves, finding each other, connecting with each other, creating bonds with each other. But that was really important. And, and over time, I, I, I don't think we saw how important it was right away, but over time it became just one of the key sort of differentiators of that company and that, that program. So this support, if it's so important to have this support system, what does that say about designers who perhaps are working solo in a company and they don't have that support system? Are they limited in how much they can grow or should are they able to go and find that support somewhere else outside of the company? If someone out there listening sits as the one designer in a company, doesn't feel they have this support system, what would you tell them? Yeah, I I think the good news is there are lots of ways to connect with other designers in the world we live in and work in now. That's, uh, you know, there are so many communities out there. 
so many platforms and forums to connect with other designers. You need to be intentional about that. If you are in a situation where you're the only designer in a small company, other designers aren't going to come find you and say, hey, do you want to be my friend? Probably not. But I guarantee you there are designers and designers all over the world who would be eager to build a good connection with you. But you have to put yourself out there and you have to be intentional about it. And you have to go and maybe go to a conference or put yourself out there on LinkedIn, for instance. For I, I believe that's how you initially reached out to me, Christian, right? So that's an example of there's a platform that we all have access to where designers are active and engaged every day. And go find your people. I mean, this is probably not different than moving to a city and kind of a new city and being on your own. And then you have to put yourself out there to find some friends. Otherwise, you're going to be on your own every day. So I guess it's not very different than that, is it? You um, were talking about this idea of making it a good place to work, right? And I think that very much falls under the responsibility of a design leader. But there, I think there's something else that for, falls under that responsibility, which we've been briefly talking about just before we hit record, which is coaching. So I think it'll be interesting to talk a little bit about coaching. First of all, perhaps how coaching played a role in your career and then looking into how have you then taken that experience and, and help coach others as a design leader as yourself. Yeah, I think it is important. And when we look at all of the moments in our careers when we face a challenge of some kind or another, a turn in the road, a new job opportunity, or a promotion you thought you were going to get, but it didn't happen, a performance review that didn't go as well as you'd hoped, and, and, and getting through some of these moments, I, I think it's important to have a network of support around you that you can turn to in, the, in, in those moments. I've certainly had some of that, although I'm at an age and a point in my career where a lot of the jobs that I've had, really all of the jobs that I've had in the last, say, 10 or 12 years of my career, I've been the first person to have that job ever. And so, so the idea of having some, finding somebody who's done the thing before I can ask questions about directly has not been quite possible in that way. I've had to find that guidance in other ways, find other people who've done other things that are kind of like what I'm doing and lean on them. And I think a lot of us who are, who've been in, in the design profession and are now at leadership levels or executive levels of some of these programs, many of us could say the same thing that I just said about our recent history in the profession, that we're the first person to do the job. So who are you going to ask? So we need to be a little creative about that. And we need to find that elsewhere. I, in my case, now I'm hosting a podcast called This is a Prototype. And really, that's, that's my secret reason for the podcast is to be able to go out there to some of the people who I admire, who I've seen do interesting and important work as design leaders, and to ask them a bunch of questions about their experience. That sounds oddly familiar, what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why, but it sounds familiar. <laughs> I think earlier, or early in your career, for those of your listeners who are earlier in their career, you have perhaps a lot more opportunity now because the profession in the last decade especially has grown so much. 
that there are a lot more people out there whose steps you are able to follow in. And so whether that is a coaching relationship or mentoring relationship or simply going out there and however you consume information, listening to podcasts, reading books or medium articles, following key people on LinkedIn or whatever social channels you're on. There are all of these ways that you can be accessing that guidance and a direct coaching relationship is one of those ways. And there are other ways that, that you can do it. You need to be intentional about it. Back to the other point that we were making about designers in isolation, finding their community, finding their people, you need to be intentional about it. So if there's someone out there listening as a relatively fresh design leader, perhaps a lead designer, a principal or a design manager for the first time, and they buy into this idea of coaching, they think I need to do it and get better at it. I need to coach others. Where would they start? Coaching is not, there's no book. Is there a book on coaching, how you can learn to do it? Or is it, does it come through experience? Or where would you start if you have never coached someone before and now you find yourself in charge of a team or perhaps someone just comes to you and asks for some mentorship? Where do you start and how do you get better at coaching? Yeah, we're talking about two different things here. We're talking about coaching, which might be sort of an informal relationship where you are sharing your own experiences and in a way that might enlighten somebody who's going through the similar path that you have. Being a manager, a people manager, it has some of that, but it also has some very important, very formal aspects to it. You have someone's career in your hands in a way, right? And there are a lot of rules and parameters to how you conduct yourself in that relationship. One recommendation that I'll make, a book that I love, that I think is really just zeroes in on this moment that you're describing, Christian, of I've just gone from being a doer, being a maker, having my hands on the work, to now I'm managing or leading this team. And all of a sudden, I'm spending almost all of my time doing something that's very different from making and doing and creating. So the book is The Making of a Manager, and it's by Julie Zhu, who was the head of design at Facebook, and now she's doing other interesting things. But she talks very intimately. I see you nodding your head, so you're probably familiar with this book. She talks very intimately and candidly about how unprepared she was for that transition of going from hands-on design to suddenly leading other designers and and how challenging that was for her and how many lessons she learned along the way. I love the book. It's written really well. It's written, it's very accessible and it's very readable. It's not dense and jargony. It's really just heartfelt and very personal. She's a great writer. And even before she wrote the book, she used to write some very, I think she had this challenge every week for a year to write some posts on Medium and 90% of them were just so insightful that, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a very great book. I can also recommend that. So if you are managing someone, again, we made the differentiation between coaching and managing, but let's move a little bit into managing. If you're managing someone, when do you know when a person is ready to step up? Is ready to make the step towards a, a leadership role themselves, right? Not just step up from a, a junior designer, now you're a product designer, now you're a senior. It's not so much that, but when are you ready to move into a leadership position yourself? Yeah, there are a lot of factors there. And this goes back, First of all, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier and the importance of that career framework that we built at IBM for designers. 
which had as part of it a rubric for measuring the progress of a designer through their different stages of their career. So hopefully the business, the company that you're working within has something like that. If they don't, then you probably need to find it or make it <laughs> or and then start rolling up the sleeves and doing some plumbing yourself. But so there's that. So you've got the rubric and you can look at that and say, okay, this designer on my team has achieved these three things at this career level, but they haven't quite gotten to these three things. So then you've got something to have a, an important conversation with that designer to say, you're doing great in these three things. And here are the three things that you need to do in order to get to that next career level or in order to position yourself for that next move in your career. And so this is where the important part comes for the manager. And I'm going to do whatever I can in the next whatever period of time it is, say the next year. In the next year, I'm going to put you in the position so that you can do those things and prove yourself. That's where a good manager comes in and recognizes, hey, I've got a designer here who's got a lot of potential. And if I'm not intentional about putting them in key positions over the next year, then we're going to have the same conversation again next year. And they're going to say, what about my promotion? And I'm going to have to say, well, you know what? You're still doing these three things really good, but these other things, blah, blah, blah. So that's where we as managers need to say, this is the plan. I'm going to seek out these opportunities for you so that next year when we have this conversation, we're talking about how you performed in those situations. And hopefully we're then able to make the case that you're ready for the next step in your career. That's a sort of an anecdotal example of how a manager can handle that. That also assumes that the business is able to support the promotion of that designer. And that's not always the case. Promotions are in established companies. Promotions are hard to come by. You really need to work hard in order to promote employees because businesses are tight with their finances, right? And they're, it costs more money to promote an employee. So that's another challenge there. And it's also not just money, right? But if you're going to get promoted into a high role, but there's no remit for that role in that company, then even if you do a great job, you perhaps you maybe not going to be promoted because there's no need for that role in a way. I think what you said here on paper makes a lot of sense because you are a seasoned design leader and you know <laughs> you know what you're doing. But the fact of the matter is that not everyone is like that. So in case you are dealing with a manager who's not as proactive as the anecdote that you've laid out, would you then as an individual contributor go in and say, hey, here's the, the rubric, as you said, here's the career progression ladder that we have here in the company. I think here are the three out of seven things I think I do really well here. I think I still need some work here. Is that idea of also asking for feedback, right? If the feedback is not being given to you, then you can ask for it and perhaps extract that from what's being given to you if your manager is not as proactive. Is that the way you would go by doing it as well? Or is there anything else that I'm missing? I think that's, a, that's an important part of it. Anyone as a designer moving through their career, you need to do your homework on these career frameworks. You need to understand what the ex what you are accountable for what you are expected to deliver and what it will take for you to take the next step in your career i guarantee you that if you go into a performance review with your manager and you 
bang your hand down on the table and say, I want a promotion. Why am I not getting a promotion? And you haven't done the homework to make the case for yourself, then the answer is going to be very disappointing for you. But if you go in and you say, look, as you did in your example, Christian, I feel like I'm pretty good in these areas. I feel like I need some work here. Is that what you're seeing as well? Then you've got a really, I think, a really positive conversation to have with a manager, even a manager who's maybe not a great manager. At least you've engaged them in a conversation there about what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, what you need to be doing more of or better at. I also think that we have a notion of portfolios and we maybe think of, I need, I only need a portfolio if I'm applying for a new job or I'm going out and, and on a job search or whatever. But we need to actually be thinking of how our career narrative is evolving. Even when we're in a job that we love, we need to be documenting our work, the value that we're bringing to a company, how we've been successful, and we need to be creating the portfolio of that so that when we go into that whatever cadence of meetings with your manager where you're having these important career conversations, you can say, look, I've done a lot of important stuff in the last year, and here's how I'm organizing it and looking at it. And that can be another way to frame that conversation in a positive way. One of my former managers told me something very similar. Every month, at the end of the month, put a reminder in your calendar and take 20 minutes to write down what have you done this month. And then if you can put numbers or how have you helped the company move forward, not just oh, I've redesigned the website, that doesn't mean much, but what have the company gotten out of that, right? Whether it's conversion rates or anything, any numbers like that. And at the end of each month, you write that down. And then a year later, as you said, you will be surprised by how many things you've done versus when you don't do this. And a year later and your manager is, or you have to think, have I, what have I done over the past year? And you barely can remember because things blend into each other and you forget details. And so I can really recommend that. Write down, end of each month, take 15, 20 minutes, write down what you've done. It's completely going to change the way you look at your work. And it's very interesting. Once you do it for at least one year, and you are able to look back and bring that to the table, what I've noticed is that when you come prepared to the table one year later, you say, here's what I've done over the last year. Your manager is also most likely to look positively towards you because first of all, you've done your homework. And second of all, most of the things that people usually forget, you don't forget because you've written them down. So I think that's a very interesting piece of advice that I've gotten in the past. I, I think that's great advice. And I, I love that sort of tactical way to, to approach it. I would also, uh, to, to add on to that, I think that it's easy for us as designers when we're making that list to to think, oh, I'm, I should only focus on the things that are the formal aspects of my job. But oftentimes as designers, we are asked to do things that aren't the expectation of our job. For instance, many of us are good facilitators of workshops. And so we get asked to come in and, and run a workshop. And you might think, oh, I did that workshop for that other part of the company. I shouldn't add that to my list. You absolutely should add that to your list because you've done something important for the company. You've built relationships back to our relationship point. You're building relationships with another part of, of the company, another team that you don't usually interact with. You're getting to know people. 
you're providing value in different ways. And whether it's that or, oh, I did the graphics for a company event or something like that. You know, these things that that we get tapped on the shoulder to do because we're good at it. And, and we need to be thinking about those kind of call them extracurricular activities. We need to be thinking about those and documenting them in the same way that we do on the, the product or service or whatever it is that we're accountable for every day. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a bit more into detail about IBM and the work you've done there together with hundreds of other designers. You said in the end thousands. And I heard this quote from Phil Gilbert. He said, the business doesn't care about design thinking. The business just cares about outcomes. And I think by this point, I would hope that a lot of people understand what this is, but just in case they don't, what did Phil Gilbert mean about this? And why was that such an important part of the work that you've done in a hundred plus year old company? Yeah, Phil was my boss for most of my time at IBM. He was the first general manager of design. Interesting about Phil, he's not a designer himself. He comes from a product background, an entrepreneurial product background, software background. And so he came at design through a business-oriented lens. The quote that you just recited of Phil's, the business doesn't care about design or design thinking, the business cares about outcomes. That was sobering for me because I was running his design thinking activation program at that time. And we were teaching design thinking to teams and leaders and the whole company for that was what we were focused on. So we're doing all this hard work. And then Phil's saying, no, the company doesn't really care about that. (laughs) But what he was really holding us to a higher bar. And he was reminding us that, yeah, teaching people how to do this stuff, yeah, that's all fine and good. The people we were teaching, by and large, they they would love it. They would get super excited about doing it. But then what? Like, it doesn't matter unless it's make. we're in a business and the business is measured on business success and business outcomes. It forced us to think about how we could measure that success. And that was super challenging. That was really, really challenging. And one of the important things that happened as an outcome of that was that Forrester Research, one of the the big research firms, came into our program to study the effectiveness of our practice of design thinking on the business to basically answer Phil's challenge and to put some quantifiable data behind it. And they came up with some really surprising and, and important research findings there around improved alignment around velocity, around return on investment, ROI, some very positive numbers. It's a great report. It's still available out there. Forrester, if you search Forrester Research, IBM Design, you'll be able to, to get that. It's a great read and it's loaded with some important business data, business outcome data. If someone listening who's an individual contributor Here's this conversation. Here's this quote. Business doesn't care about design thinking. The business just cares about outcomes and things. What can I do with this at work right now? Like, what can I take? How is this productive for me? How, what can they take that and do with it 
let's say, that are a sole designer or two people in a company that perhaps doesn't have a culture of design, perhaps similar to how IBM was at the beginning of this program, right? What can they do with this? I think it's inspiring. And I think it gets back to the importance of those relationships with our cross-functional peers and stakeholders in the business. Even if you're a designer of one or two or five in a small team in a smaller company, you, you, that's where that relationship comes into play. Chances are you are working with some product leaders, some technical leaders, maybe marketing or data science. That's where you, you need to go to those cross-functional peers and say, we need to work together in order to figure out how to understand when we're actually having a positive impact on this business. Chances are that there are other people asking the same question. And again, as soon as that goes from being a design question to being a team question, and it's about the shared impact that we all have, it's a more interesting and important idea. And then you're really actually talking about outcomes to the business. Because if you're only measuring what one or two or five people have on that business, that's gonna be really challenging. But when you can say, hey, we as a cross-functional team of X number, then you've got an interesting idea there. Let me play back. What you're saying is focus more on understanding what the goals are for the entire team and figuring out how you as a designer or as a design team fit into that. And perhaps don't talk so much about you and your function as a designer, what design can do and all of this. You're saying focus more on the higher goal of the whole team, build those relationships and then have design retrofit in a way into that. Am I understanding it correctly? Yeah, I don't like the idea of retrofitting, but I think that absolutely looking at it as a complex organism rather than a single cell, that instantly makes it more meaningful. We were always at IBM, we were always thinking, we called them complex teams, that sort of multifaceted, multidisciplinary, multifunctional, cross-functional, complex team. It almost always had design, engineering, and product, but sometimes it had marketing and data and business analytics and some other thing that, you know, was unique to whatever industry they were working within. That was the unit that we were studying and that we were trying to accelerate and elevate. I'm going to change gears again. Let's talk about something that we don't often get to talk about on this podcast, which is the role of ethics. What is the role of ethics in design? It's not something we're discussing a lot nowadays. It's more about the latest tooling and the latest interpretation of this method or that method or ethics is not the subject at every design table. Should it be? I think it should always be in the field of vision. And increasingly, as we're all now working more deeply with AI and machine learning and different ways to generate not only the content that we are designing for, but increasingly design itself. We need to be sharpening our understanding of what of the sort of the ethical concerns that we are working within. Absolutely. I think that designers are the champion of the user, of the customer, of the patient. 
the audience member, whoever that is that we're designing for, we are the person, they are our primary concern. And so we need to be, when we talk about how ethics matters to a designer, it's primarily going to matter in how responsible we are to that person. And oftentimes we are in a position because we are, we have the, the sharpest or the most direct relationship with that person that we see something that the business is about to do or the business has done that is not in that person's best interest or not being honorable to that person in some way that violates and maybe even violates that person in in ways and we need to be vocal about that and we need to be clear about when that line is crossed so yeah a huge concern there for designers and i um i I don't think it it gets enough airtime and yeah i appreciate you bringing it up it's also hard sometimes as a designer when that line is about to get crossed but then you have to convince other stakeholders in the business that that line is about to get crossed. And that's really comes down to perhaps being able to influence, being able to storytell, being able to bring examples from how people actually use your product and what this small change that might cross the line might do to their experience. How would you go about doing that? If you think we're about to do something here that I'm not entirely comfortable doing, obviously you would say that, but is there any way where you can pursue stakeholders further if they're kind of set on this direction that you don't agree with? Yeah, I think I think good, sound user research is our most powerful, and storytelling, to your point, those are our most powerful tools in that process. The, the one most consistent way that I saw after years of working with teams at IBM that even the most resistant and calcified business leader who didn't you didn't ever think would change their mind if you if our teams could come to them and with the voice of the user and present a clear case for a change in direction the voice of the user is so powerful it's irrefutable and if we can present that and tell the story of that and place that in context for those business leaders and those other technical leaders, that's where we're using our superpower and our purpose of being the champion of the user to a really important end. And again, if we go in there huffing and puffing and yelling and screaming, that's probably not going to go very well. But if we go in there with clear research and we go in there with a compelling story, then oftentimes we start to move the needle. I've spoken numerous times and given numerous stories on this podcast in the past about how uh, involving different senior, very senior stakeholders in uh, some sort of research has completely changed their minds because most senior stakeholders who are not designers or product people at least don't have a connection to the end user on a daily basis. And sometimes when you actually not force them, but make it easier for them to get involved or sending a a couple of clips to them from someone from a testing session or from an interview or whatever, you get to kind of humanize the end user in their minds as well. And I think that sometimes changes can happen just because they just weren't aware that these things are happening out there. And now that they've seen it, they're much more likely to back down if there's something to or to change their tune or whatever it may be. And I think storytelling also plays really well into this because again, if you come in with a great story with artifacts, whether that's an interview or something like that, 
that in itself can be a very powerful story. I think you're getting at something important here. And we, this is an insight of the program as we built it at IBM. And that was the idea of inviting other, these cross-functional stakeholders into the design process. Quite literally, I talked about those design studios, those workspaces that we created and built. Those were built for cross-functional collaboration that we're talking about here. So when we invited those sometimes resistant business leaders into that environment, got their hands on it, got them into the doing of it with a team, you're absolutely right. That's a transformative experience for many of them. And we had great success with that. Absolutely. One more uh, subject I want to touch upon is design in the age of AI. Not so much design, but rather what do you see as very important skills for designers to retain or upskill on to be able to still stay relevant in this world that, first of all, we don't really know how it's going to change, but it looks like it's changing very fast. Whichever direction it's going, is changing very fast. What are skills that you think over the next five to 10 years are still going to be relevant, are still going to be very important for designers to either pick up or get better at? Well, I, I think first we need to be sharp in our understanding of the tech. We need to know what AI is, how it works, what it can do and what it can't do, what happens behind the magic, behind the glass to make it work, because there are some very important aspects to that that will inform how we think about it and how we work with it. And, and this is challenging because this requires us to either educate ourselves or find that information or somehow get support from the company or the team that we're working for with to to do some professional development or some some uh, continuous learning that means that we as managers and leaders need to be making the time and the space for our designers to be able to sharpen their skills and advance their skills in those areas so that's important then we need to be going back to what we do best and that is understanding our users and creating great experiences for them we need to keep in mind that ai is not an experience ai is technology and so what is the experience of interacting with ai that i think that's a very wide open space we've got some examples i can go to chat gpt i can type in a provocation and I can push the the button and it will give me something back. But that's, I don't know what the comparison is, but that's kind of like AOL. That's like a, that's like a big old cell phone that is the size of a brick in as a metaphor. I think in five years or 10 years, we're going to have invented and designed those experiences and those paradigms and those sort of core fundamental ways of interacting, those interaction models that haven't been invented and designed yet. So there is a lot of important and great and really cool work to be done by designers in that space that we haven't even scratched the surface of yet. I have a little tradition at the end of the podcast. I ask the same two questions to all guests. And the first one is, what is one action that you think that led to your success that perhaps in one way or another separated you from some of your peers? It's a good question. I think 
Well, it depends on what you mean by peers. The, the reason that I came to design to begin with was that I could draw. When I was a kid, I could draw pictures that looked like something that I was trying to draw. <laughs> And, uh, and, and that's, that's, that was what was originally interesting about getting into a career at first as a graphic designer, as I said earlier, and that core skill has stuck with me. And so when I am trying to make sense of something, I visualize it and I sketch it out and I draw a diagram of it or whatever. It's almost always when I come to a complex thing that I can't quite understand. I make a picture of it and then it helps me understand. And so I don't know whether that's differentiated me from other designers. I think a lot of designers think and, and work that way, but it certainly has differentiated me in the broader sort of business world. And the last one is, what are we not talking about enough when it comes to design? I don't think we're talking about the experience of leaders enough. We've talked about it a little bit in this conversation. That's an obsession that I have. But I think we're at a very interesting point where, again, like me, most of the, the leaders that I look at for inspiration have had to learn how to be a leader without a rule book, without any sort of guidance. They've just had to figure it out on uh, along the way. And so, uh, you know, I'm trying to talk more about how challenging that is and to give more of a forum for sharing experiences so that designers, as they go through their careers, have, have uh, the benefit of these stories and these experiences that many of us haven't had. Doug, if people want to follow you or get in touch with you or figure out what you're up to, where could they go about and do that? Um, I'm very active on LinkedIn, so you can always reach out to me. Just DM me on, connect with me on LinkedIn and DM me there. And they can also follow the podcast. This is a prototype, the Design Leadership Podcast. It's available on all the places where you get podcasts. Those are a couple of ways. And I also have a training and coaching practice myself. And so if anyone is interested in, in that, I'm always happy to talk about that as well. I will make all of these very easy to access in uh, the show notes. Doug, thank you very much for being on. You've been an inspiration for me and many other designers over the years. And I'm actually so chuffed that uh, you've agreed to come on the podcast. So thank you very much. Once again, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you, Christian. It's been great. If you've listened this far, thank you. I appreciate you. And I hope you've learned something that makes you just a little bit better than yesterday. You can check out the show notes on designmeetsbusiness.co. If this has taught you anything, please consider leaving a review and sharing the episode with someone else who could learn from it. And I'll catch you in the next one.